Welcome back to the 72nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories. One, where we are talking about how fatherlessness may actually feed into crime. I know, we've heard this one for a while, but there's some new statistics out that I want to discuss. Our second article is talking about the banana republic-level corruption inside New Jersey. And our last story is a tragic one, talking about a police officer who was off-duty in New York who lost his life over the weekend. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So there's no lack of a debate today. Well, I know, right? We're starting with the daily debate with something that is contentious. No way. But in our generation, Gen Z, we are always going back and forth. We're conflicted. We're thinking, should we settle down in the cities? Should we go to the suburbs? Or maybe we should go live on the farms or near the forests. And both have their appeal. You know, I myself, I'm partial to the country, and I'm not the largest fan of the fast-paced city. But with the city comes proximity to anything you could need or, or want. Good food, better internet, more church options. And I know, right, good food and better internet, that sounds like a really Gen Z perspective. But all the amenities you could ever want, child care, Maybe you have a certain type of gym that you really enjoy that only franchises in bigger cities. The options are endless there, or at least they feel like there are more compared to the country. But rising crime rates in these cities is dissuading some of the value that these cities bring and the benefits they offer. So my question to you is, which do you prefer? Does the equation change if you see yourself with kids or family in the future? Or is it exactly the same? You're willing to take the risk because maybe those cities have better education programs. They have better federal or state subsidies for sending your kid to a really expensive charter school. Something to that effect. I'd love to hear your opinions down in the comments section. And yes, it is kind of targeted at people that don't have families yet. But if you do have a family and you have an opinion why you like the city more than the country, please tell me. I'd love to hear, or vice versa, if you like the country more than the city. All right, let's jump into our first story. This one comes from Just the News. Fatherless children, dangerous cities. Numbers confirm deep roots of urban crime epidemic. So if you had to guess, how many cities do you think are on the list of the top 50 most dangerous cities in the world that are in the United States. Five, seven, nine, ten. Well, the answer is 11. Now, I would love to have a look-see, to look under the hood and see what these authors are using in this study to measure danger. But regardless, 11 of our cities made the list. And now we're going to discuss why. Quote, permissive crime justice policies are widely thought to be the largest factor driving such grim statistics. Dig a little deeper, however, and 
and even more important cause of the crime academic plaguing blue cities comes into sharp focus. And the quote does go on, and I'll keep reading, but what I forgot to highlight, the part I did not bring from the article, is almost actually all of these 11 cities are run by blue mayors. And I don't necessarily think that's the most important thing, but it is context because the author does lean a little heavily on that during this article. Many of these cities are also home to a staggering percentage of single-parent households, the great majority of which are headed by single mothers. The large overlap shouldn't be surprising for two reasons. First, the U.S. has the highest rate of single-parent households in the world. Second, the connection between single-parent households and crime is very strong. According to a research carried out by Jared Brown, a behavioral specialist, at Concordia St. Paul, the extent literature, quote, suggests that children raised in single-parent households experience more physical and psychological problems compared to those raised in two-parent homes, end quote. So this correlation cannot easily be dismissed, in my opinion. And of course, correlation does not equal causation, but it is a large factor. And it has been extensively researched over the decades because this has been an ongoing question. Single parenthood households, the number of them in the United States has been rising since the 70s. So as crime rose during that time, there was, of course, speculation that this could be a factor. So there have been many studies done over the generations about this. But this is just trying to bring it back to the forefront, have another conversation about it, especially after a lot of the violence that we've been seeing in a lot of our major cities after COVID-19. So it's an important point to talk about. That's why I really want to bring it up. And the other part of this is we keep bringing it up and then somehow we forget or it gets ignored and we're not ever really facing this fact in the mainstream. We're never sitting down and saying, okay, this is a huge problem about with fatherless homes. And yes, to be fair, if you are a person of a conservative bend, you have heard this argument over and over and over. And if you're on the left, you have rebutted or just brushed this argument off over and over and over. What I mean is, we have never been able to get this message to the middle ground, to the middle Americans, and have it stick and actually have a conversation about it. And this is extremely important in my mind because it doesn't matter if it is any type of family. It doesn't matter if it's a mom in the house or just a father in the house. A single-parent household is less beneficial for the children who are being raised in it. I had a conversation with a family member of mine, and we were going back and forth. We were a little heated, and this was during COVID times, and everybody's stress levels were high, of course. And we started on the conversation of privilege. And I said, I don't know about all this other privilege, but there's one privilege that I will readily and happily admit to, and that I am actually proud of, which is I have both of my parents in the house. I was grown, sorry, I was raised in a two-parent household. And I agree with anybody who would state that that is essential, but also I would say it is a privilege. It is a beautiful thing. It has allowed for stability. And I think it's something that a lot of these families lack. And that's why we need to have this conversation in the mainstream. Because in order to actually change the value system, to change the value structure, 
to actually address the issue, people have to be aware of it. It can't just be an argument in passing. It can't just be a political point. It needs to be something that we actually consciously think about and try to avoid in a lot of different communities around the United States. Quote, there are roughly 74 million children in the United States, close to 24 million, or 34% of these children live in a single-parent family. Of these, 15 million live in mother-only households. So what, 15 million out of 24 million? Do some quick math. That's around 62% or so. So... Look at that, 62%, and that's a rough estimation, just so we're clear. But that's a lot of kids who are just living with their moms that don't have a father in the house. And that means, if we're to use that math, that could be wrong there, 38% don't have a mother in the home. Imagine you're a young girl growing up in one of these cities and you don't have a mother figure to look to. You never learn what is important, or at least have an example of what is important for a mother to do what values that she has, what practices she does on a daily basis that benefit the family. Imagine that. That's one of the most devastating parts to me. And we'll, we'll touch on this a little bit more. But the question that arises from this is, how can you expect our future generations to be active, contributing members of society if they don't have a good socialization mechanism, such as the family, a family, first off, but when I say the family, I mean the nuclear family, the single idea of what a family was up until 50 years ago or so. In a nuclear family, boys and girls look to their parents to understand the roles that they play in their future family, but also in society. They look to, and this has obviously been broken down a little bit as feminism has arisen sort of these normal gender roles, so quote-unquote, have been kind of, let's say, chipped away at or kind of altered. But the idea still stands, which is if you look to your mother when you're growing up as a young girl, she gives you some insight as to what are good qualities in a mother or, inversely, what some bad qualities are in a mother, and maybe you don't want to practice those when you get out in the world. She shows you maybe it's okay to do this activity, but not this activity. And you're able to relate with her because you are both women who have gone through society. She can relate and tell you stories about what it was like for her as a girl growing up. And same for men. They can relate their experiences. They can t- show their sons what it means to be a man, quote-unquote, And, of course, other people in communities can do this. If there's not a father in the house, there could be a local community church leader that steps up and teaches a son how to be a man. But that is harder to do. And also, it is harder to instill that faith that is inherent between a father and son. So that is why this is a huge issue, in my opinion. When we say, well, it takes a village. Yes, it does take a village. But there's there's a deep connection between you and your parents, your biological parents. It's something you can't necessarily explain. And 
it's hard to replicate that. Not impossible. And there are many great examples of different community leaders replicating that and guiding men and young girls out of certain terrible situations when they're in a single-parent household. But it is hard to replicate that connection, that inherent trust, that looking up to a person as being almost infallible and trying to emulate them. There's this very hard feeling to replicate when they are not your biological parent. So when people can't understand their place in society, their role, their purpose, this leads to hopelessness. And this is the author kind of extrapolating and going on and now trying to relate it to crime. Sometimes the, this leads to depression, antisocial behavior, and sometimes people turn to crime to replace the family or purpose they lack. 70% of juveniles in juvie and 85% of youth in prison come from households that are without a father figure. I thought that was a very staggering number when I first read it, and that's why I pulled that statistic out for this little summary. Now we'll jump to a quote from the article. Quote, in Memphis, the world's 18th most dangerous city, 63% of the city's families are headed by a single parent. Less than 10% have a single father at the helm. As measured by a range of indicators, the impact of growing up in a fatherless home is simply devastating. As AFPI has emphasized, 85% of American children with behavioral disorders have been raised in fatherless homes. Fatherless children are three times more likely to be behind bars by the time they turn 30 than children raised in two-parent households. Children raised without a father are also more likely to abuse drugs and exhibit delinquent behavior, end quote. So when will we try to address this issue? When will we take it head on? When will we finally say this is enough? We need to change the culture. We need to ensure that fathers stick around. We don't just tax them. We don't just say, oh, pay this amount of money per month and you don't have to be responsible for your child. I don't know. I don't know when it's finally going to click. I don't know if it ever will click. But we have to start. We, as a generation, as anybody listening to this who agrees with me, if you disagree with me, you can totally skip this. So, nope, you don't need to do anything. If you think it's fine how it is, you have that perspective. I'm not going to change it. And I bet we could have an interesting conversation about it. But for those of you that agree with me, stick around for the next five seconds. If you don't care, skip ahead maybe a minute or so before, and then I'll get to the next article. We need to change this. We need to actively promote values such as being a responsible father, being a responsible mother, sticking with your family, being responsible for your actions. If you get somebody pregnant or if you get pregnant by somebody and you stick it out, you have the child, then you two come together and raise that child. We have to be more responsible as a society. We can't just say, oh, no, it's okay. I'll just send them the money. I will just send them the child care support payment, and then I'm out. I don't have to do anything else. That does not actually help the child, and it's actually going to lead that child to be more likely to do the exact same thing when they have a kid outside of wedlock. So we need to change the culture. There are many ways to do it. We just have to take steps and actively try and not give up before we start the battle. And I say the battle. That's hyperbole. Before we start the change. 
All right, let's jump to our second article. For all of you that skipped ahead through my little speech about, oh, we need to change, we need to be the movement. Welcome back. We're going to read an article from Salone. Banana Republic level, murder, justice, and Jersey politics. So when people think of corruption and violence aimed at politicians, they probably think Chicago in the 20s, New York in the 60s, but it may not come to mind, well, many situations come to mind, of syndicated crime pulling the strings from behind the curtain. But it may not come to mind that we're talking about one of the most urban states, New Jersey, which is actually very corrupt. I mean, another example of corruption you may be thinking of is lobbyists beating politicians over the head with money in Washington, D.C. I think that's, I think that's an appropriate thought process, and I don't think that's gone away. So you could... That could be a fair kind of mental picture you're getting. But like I said, not many people are thinking of New Jersey. They don't have it at the top of their mind. Quote, just days after the gruesome February 1st murder of 30-year-old Serene Council member Eunice K. Dufamar. I'm going to, wow, I think I mispronounced her name very terribly there. I am extremely sorry to her family. A Republican governor, Phil Murphy, tried his hand at a crime reporter, as a crime reporter, using his public radio call-in show to speculate on the case. He told listeners to his WNYC, WBGO, WHHY, February 2nd show, that he had conducted an informal canvas of a whole bunch of elected folks in the know who have been around for a long time and that none of them could recall a sitting elected official of the state being shot and killed. Murphy continued, Unfortunately, there is very little that is known now, and I have spoken, obviously, to our team, the Attorney General. Our folks are all over this, as you can imagine, as are Middlesex and Centerville law enforcement authorities and prosecutors. Again, I almost hesitate to say it, because I don't know this, but there's no evidence that this was an accident. It feels very specific, end quote. So, you know, if you are listening to that, you're listening to the governor of your state, and he says to you, it doesn't feel like an accident. It feels very specific. That is not comforting. Those are not comforting words coming from your governor of your state. And it's not only a weird thing, But it's also kind of scary because this article goes on to talk about how in the past two decades, New Jersey has faced a whole bunch of weird, out-of-place, politically-related sort of corruption problems. Let's put it that way. And we're not just talking about this murder here. We're talking about, if you remember the close of the... Uh, Washington Bridge, or if you're familiar with New Jersey, the murder of the, Sir, I believe you pronounce it, Surden family. So we'll, we'll jump into this very quickly. I just think it's, it's very peculiar. And when I read this article at first, I was like, oh, this is going to be a conspiracy theorist article. I'm not going to talk about this on the show. I just kind of want to read it to see what they have to say. It was an interesting title. And as I got into it, I started thinking, wow, New Jersey does not sound fun. And the reason that I thought it would be well-placed today is because we're talking about 
the decay or the falling apart of urban America. And I think that it's important to talk about one of the most urban states in the United States. New Jersey is actually the second most urbanized state in the entire United States. New York is first. California is second. And our last story, of course, relates to New York and the crime wave going on there. And you've seen some of the crime activities over the last year in California. So a lot of these urban states are facing a lot of crime. And in New Jersey, apparently it's not outright stealing, but more behind-the-scenes corruption. And it hasn't just been going on for the last year or two. It's actually been going on for quite a while. So the other headline-grabbing case of corruption was in the death of Joyce and John Sheridan, first covered up as a murder-suicide. It later came out that there was an attempt by the police department to sweep the case under the rug. John was a prominent lobbyist and former transportation commissioner. A new probe has now been opened after years of pressure from their children. Oh, and don't forget about Michael G- Wow, I'm sorry for all the New Jersey people. Galerny. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing his name wrong. The operative, Michael Galerny, was stabbed in his second floor apartment, was set on fire four months before the Sheridan's death. Sheen Cattle, a well-connected political consultant, has confessed to hiring two men, George Bratinus and Bonmani Africa, to kill Mr. Galarney, a one-time friend and colleague. Prosecutors have not disclosed a motive, but all three have pled guilty in a federal court and await sentencing, end quote. And what's interesting about that as well is it kind of sounds similar to the Sheridan case where they were both stabbed and then the house was set on fire. Now, the author makes the tenuous connection that maybe, maybe they're the same people that got hired to go after Mr. Galerny, but there's no direct evidence. They haven't pled guilty. They haven't actually made that connection quite yet, but I think it's extremely interesting that you have a well-connected political consultant in Mr. Cattle outright hiring people to kill people that don't necessarily align with him politically or no longer serve him politically. I don't know all the motivation behind it. I have not seen the court transcripts. It just feels weird, and it points to more corruption inside New Jersey. I'm sorry for anybody who's listening from New Jersey. I have no personal animus against your state. Let's be clear. I don't love your state, and I make jokes about your state all the time, but I have no personal animus against your state. It's just these corruption allegations, stories, are very interesting to me. So we have one more part of it, which is everyone remembers the George Washington Bridge, right? And how they basically closed it down for four days. Well, it's currently still being fought in court to release the evidence that would expose a Mr. John Doe, who played a role in the closing of the bridge, which impeded the traffic of anybody who needed to get anywhere such as fire departments or the ambulance services that possibly needed to take people to the hospital or retrieve people from their homes who were having medical emergencies. So you can see why this is another interesting aspect to the corruption in New Jersey and that 
what the bridge incident happened in 2014 and they're still fighting it to this day. They're still having people claim, well, if this information came out, it would hurt John Doe's political career. So we have to keep the information sealed. So we'll see how this comes out at the end of the day. But this is what happens when you have a really urbanized state with centralized power. And, well, actually, that's more of a question for you. I'll ask, is this what happens when you have a state with centralized power? Or is it just a New Jersey thing? I, I honestly have no idea. I'm going to be frank with you. I just think that it is a factor of being in such an urbanized state where everybody's so close together, where you're all jam-packed like sardines, and at the end of the day, being a politician can be lucrative in some of these circles. But that's just my opinion on the matter. Let's jump to our last story. It'll be a brief one. This one comes from the Daily Wire. New York Police Department officer dies after being shot in the head during attempted robbery. Quote, a New York Police Department officer died days after being shot in the head during a robbery attempt over the weekend. The officer, 26-year-old Adid Fayez, succumbed to his injuries on Tuesday. NYPD Commissioner Chichant Sewell announced in a tweet hours after, a suspect, after the suspect was arrested, quote, police officer Adid Fayez was a father, a husband, a son, and a protector of our great city. Sewell said, quote, Officer Fayez was shot Saturday night and he tragically succumbed to his injuries today. Our department deeply mourns his passing, and his family and loved ones are in our prayers, end quote. And this, of course, is a very sad story. And first off, I send my prayers to his family, and I hope they come out of this in some sort, uh, with some sort of peace. And I know that's extremely hard to think about, but like I said, my prayers go out to them. Mr. Fayez was attempting to purchase a vehicle after striking a deal over social media. The suspect, Randy Jones, 38, has been arrested, and as of the recording of this podcast, the charges are pending. The authorities say that they don't believe that Jones knew that Fayez was a police officer. So why I thought this was an important story to be highlighted and to be put in this episode particularly is the fact that not even the people meant to protect us, those who are trained for these situations, are immune from the effects of crime. NYC is one of the most dangerous in crime-ridden cities in the U.S. Now, of course, when you account for the fact that it has a higher population density, statistics can get a little bit skewed. Actually, when you do factor in population density into the breakdown, then the top cities for violent crime per 100,000 people are Memphis, Detroit, and Milwaukee. They all top the list. But regardless, crime has increased in all of these top cities, including New York. And in my opinion, this is actually a symptom of the urban decay not actually a cause. And I think that as the urban population has become more disenfranchised, as they look at their situation and ask, how am I ever going to get out of this poverty? How am I ever going to break this cycle of being in a fatherless home and then leaving my child? How am I ever going to break out of this system? You have people who are desperate. 
your people who are hopeless, who are depressed, who want to find family in different crime organizations. You have people who really want to get out of their situation. And they turn to very, very desperate means to do that, such as setting up a fake car deal online and then robbing a person when they come to pick up the vehicle. And I think that that is a symptom, not a cause. At the end of the day, the decay of the urban, the decay of these areas around cities, it is actually a loop. It's a cycle. These fatherless homes produce more fatherless homes, which produces more crime, which then in turn sucks in more men, creating more fatherless homes when some of these men go away to jail. It's a cycle. And I'm not saying that it's a cycle that we can't control. There have to be active measures. There have to be points where we step in and say, no, you need to take agency. You can't let this cycle define you. You have to be the one to break the cycle. We can, of course, have outreach programs, try to reinvigorate some of the institutions in these communities that are meant to help families stay together. But at the end of the day, it is the ultimate decision of these people. They have agency in their lives. We cannot, do, we cannot take away the agency of these people who are stuck in these cycles in these inner cities or even in, let's be clear, some of the suburbs of these cities, not necessarily in the inner cities, but areas around these cities. Anyone who's poor who's dealing with these cycles of sadness, poverty, and crime, we cannot take away their agency. We cannot say that, no, it is not your fault. It is all the system around you. It is all the social influences that have circled around you your entire life that have made this happen. It's not your fault. We can't say that. We can say that those are factors, but we have to say the ultimate decision is up to you. Do you want a better life? Do you want to raise your child? Do you want your child to be more successful? Do you want more generational wealth? Then you have to take the first step. You have to step out. You have to be the one to make that ultimate decision. And we have to provide them with opportunities like I was talking about. We can't just say it is all up to you and only you. We still have to provide opportunities. We have to have outreach programs. We have to have more church involvement in some of these areas. That's, that's my opinion. I'm not saying that's the ultimate solution, but I think that having more church involvement would be a fruitful thing to do in some of these communities. And we want to build a better future, not just for them, not just the ones that are in it right now, but for their children. And we want to make sure that they're not stuck in these cities, in these urban areas. If that means that we open up a farm where they can come out to the country and come ride horses and do something different than their normal city lives, go right ahead. And to be clear, I am not trying to just hate on cities. I told you at the beginning that I'm more in favor of the country. That doesn't mean I think cities are bad outright. I'm just trying to say that there is a decay in cities. And if we want to change it, we have to step in. We have to ensure that people are personally responsible for their decisions while also providing the, the opportunities to get out of these terrible, terrible situations. All right, that's enough sadness. Let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the Animal Rescue Site. Musical Cockatoo sings September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. 
So if America's talent got talent is still looking for new headliners, I may have found him. Quote, some pets even have hidden talents, like a musical cockatoo that's taking the internet by storm. The one-year-old cockatoo named Leo Valdez is making a splash on social media thanks to his fabulous whistling and singing abilities. And it's not just one song, by the way. He has a deep library that he can pull on to impress people. Quote, the bird can sing a number of songs, including the famous theme song from The Addams Family, The Star-Spangled Banner by Francis Scott Key, and Jingle Bells by James Perpinet, among others. In an adorable viral video shared online, you can hear Leo Valdez singing September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. End quote. So if you want to see any of the cute photos or hear his singing in any of these cute videos or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of that. Also down in the description of the YouTube video is the link to all the places where you can find this podcast, where you can download it for a road trip, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine. So, and also down there is the Twitter handle, at your daily flip. But with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.